You know, and you don't want to disappoint them and all, but the reality is you also know in your heart they're talking common sense, you know, and, and it, is, and it really, really works, you know, that, you know, people say, how, I mean, how could you work with so many different co-authors and all? Well, I love people. People are great, you know, and, you know, I, I need their help, you know, we, we're, we're a team and all that kind of thing, you know, and so it's, but it's just, you know, I always say that love is the answer. What's the question? Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part two of our interview with Ken Blanchard. If you don't know Ken, you should. He's sold, written over or co-authored over 65 books, over 23 million copies sold. Uh, he's the Amazon top 25 best-selling authors of all time, Hall of Fame. And uh, he writ- wrote and co-authored one of my favorite books of all time called Servant Leadership in Action that I hope you all get a copy of. And in about 12 days, starting February 1st, 2022, you can get his new book that I'm really looking forward to. It's called Simple Truths of Leadership, 52 Ways to Be a Servant Leader and Build Trust. Ken, why do you think there are so many misconceptions about what it means to be a servant leader? Well, I think somehow people think that's a weakness. You know, I mean, you're supposed to be in charge, you know, and they have this history about my way or the highway or look up the hierarchy and and all. And I think it was C.S. Lewis or Rick Warren or some of the folks, some people give me credit for saying people with humility uh, don't think less of themselves. They just think about themselves less. And because the key to being a servant leader is humility, because you got to be thinking of other people more than yourself. But at the same time, you have to feel good about yourself. You know, a lot of people say, you know, to be a good leader, you need self-confidence. And the self-confidence then permits you to also bring other people aboard, you know, and also it's it's interesting. We started a kind of an Egos Anonymous program, you know, <laughs> for looking at servant leader because the, the biggest holdback for people being servant leaders is the human ego where they act like either they have a more than philosophy, you know, I'm brighter than, I'm smarter than, or they have a less than, you know, I'm not as bright and all, you know, it's a self-doubt uh, kind of thing. And and both of them are you're focusing on yourself, you know, whether you have self-doubt or whether you're false pride. And it's interesting the fellow wrote, I'm okay, you're okay, years ago. He said the worst life position is I'm okay, you're not. But he said all the data shows that they're covering up not okay feelings about themselves. So the way to overcome false pride is humility. And the way to overcome fear and self-doubt is to trust the unconditional love of God. God didn't make any junk, as my mother said. There's a pearl of goodness in everybody, including yourself. And so you ought to be on your own side. And uh, it's really fun to, I got some managers who every week when they have a meeting with their direct reports, they start off with an Egos Anonymous meeting and people have to tell a time the last week when they got their ego in the way, either false pride where they acted like they know it all or fear of self-doubt. And uh, I always say to them, if you can't think of one time 
in the last week, your ego got in the way. You lie about other things too, because <laughs> our ego ego is alive and well. But it's like you know, alcohol is anonymous. The more you identify it and talk about it, the the better you have a chance to give it up. And so it's it's really fun to have people standing up and saying, "Hi, I'm Ken." You know, and everybody says, hi, Ken. And they say, I'm an egomaniac. And then they tell a false pride or, or all that kind of thing. And so, but it, it, it is, you know, I mean, you say, well, did your ego get in the way? Well, I just told you this before we got on the show. One of our top managers, his son was just killed in an accident climbing. And, and I, I started thinking, well, what can I do to help them? You know, I did like, you know, and I just you know, finally said, what you can do is send love and prayers and all that, you know, don't act like you're going to fix this, Blanchard. It's not fixable. <laughs> so but we all get in our own way. And you just have to identify it. So it's fun. So you Ego's Anonymous programs here. <laughs> you know, as you describe that, it makes sense to me that it's almost like systematic desensitization. The more I can be honest and the more I can be open about my ego getting in the way, the easier, like the less shame I have about it, the faster I can fix it, the faster I can make things right. No, it's just really interesting that the, the great leaders that I've seen, you know, they, they just are all there for people. They don't even know how great they are, you know. And like, you know, I had a wonderful time getting to know Herb Keller, who founded Southwest Airlines. And then I wrote a book with Colleen who took over. And the two of them, they they could have thought, they never thought that they were the, the cat's meow, you know, it was their people. And, and look what they built, you know, and in there. And then Druid Cathy, you know, I mean, he, he, he just, just didn't think that he was the cat's meow. He was just in there, what can we do to you know, share the love of, of, of God, you know, I mean, here they're not open on Sunday and they still, you know, outsell almost everybody in the fast food business because he said, it's supposed to be a day of rest. <laughs> you know, for those are interesting characters, you know. It, it's interesting how much as a society we look down on fast food and what unhappy working environments they typically are. And yet the, the internet jokes about how nice people are at Chick-fil-A <laughs> are like such a complete polar opposite of their whole industry. Or like you talk about Herb Kelleher, right? Yeah. You know, Warren Buffett, kind of a business hero of mine. I talk about on all, basically almost every episode on this show. And he talks about how he needed to join Airlineaholics Anonymous and he needed to swear off airline investments, except Southwest. Southwest is one of the top performing stocks of all time and happens to be from an industry that has such a terrible reputation for being profitable. Yes. Right? Yeah. Surprising. No, yeah. And they, they, it's just amazing. Uh, <clears throat> as I ran into, you know, all those people when I was working with them, you know, I did a lot of training at Southwest and, and all. And it's just, it was all about you all are fabulous. And so, Go take care of the customers. See, all the great companies I know, their number one customer is their people. If you take care of your people, love on your people, train on your people, 
then they go out of their way to take care of your second most important customer, the people who use your products and services. Then they become raving fans of your organization and part of your sales force. And duh, that takes care of the organization. A lot of people think the reason to be in business is to make profit. No, profit is the applause you get for creating a motivating environment for your people so they'll take care of your customers. And it's just uh, wonderful just to see how how that really works. I got to work with Wegmans, the grocery store, and that's just a family business, you know, and the, the grandfather and all that started. I mean, they could have thought less about themselves. It was all about their their people, you know, and Chick-fil-A. I mean, you go through their, their uh, drive-through and those young people are having fun and they love it being there and their turnover. I mean, the average turnover in fast food organizations like... 150% a year, and they're like 20%, you know, you know, in Chick-fil-A. And uh, why? Because they, they tell them how important they are and then and how important our customers are. You know, this book that you talked about, The Simple Secrets, I wanted to call it initially, duh, why isn't common <laughs> sense common practice? But somehow the publisher felt that duh doesn't translate into foreign languages. I, I have a feeling now it was a mistake. I should have kept with that title. Duh, why isn't common sense common practice? Well, you are one of the people that has converted me so much to like pursuing like pursuing servant leadership almost like as a martial art. Like you got to practice it. You need the repetitions. You quit thinking that because you know the definition – you're skilled at executing, you know, I feel like, I feel like you should have those switched and like the title should be 52 ways to be a servant leader and build trust. And then the tagline could be the simple truth. Um, it sounds like your dad had a big influence on you. Yes. Can you talk about growing up with an admiral, a Navy admiral as a father and a well, other let me lessons? Well, tell you a little bit about the background so you understand what an amazing human being he grew up at West Point where the military academy is. His father was a doctor there. And he loved West Point. He heard, you know, saw Jim Thorpe run the two touchdowns back and, you know, heard all kinds of great speeches. And, and he wanted to go there when he got out of high school. And his father said, no, son, I think you should go away to school. And he said, well, if I can't go to West Point, I'll go to the Naval Academy. And he went to Annapolis in Maryland and, and graduated in 1924. But they didn't think they'd need naval officers in 24 because we just had ended World War II and I think 22. And so they dismissed him after his senior cruise. And he, in January 25, he went to Harvard Business School and majored in finance and went down onto Wall Street, began his career. And he was about to be made a vice president of National City Bank. And he came home in 1940, and I was one year old. And he said to my mom, he said, well, I quit today. She said, you did what? He said, yeah, I quit. She said, what? She said, I quit my job. She said, to do what? She said, I rejoined the Navy. She said, you got to be kidding me. He said, didn't I tell you when we got married, if the country ever got in trouble, I thought I owed it something. Hitler's crazy and the Japanese will be in this. So here he goes. He's about to be a vice president. Goes, second Louis. They put him in Brooklyn Navy Yard. Pearl Harbor comes and looks like he's going to stay there because he's 40 years old with no experience. So that wasn't my dad's <laughs> style. So one of his classmates that stayed in was a top guy and the Naval Bureau personnel in Washington. So dad called him and said, John, what do you got for an old fart in the action? I got to get in the action. He said, Ted, I'll, I'll, I'll take a look and let you know. A couple of days later, he called back. He said, Ted, 
unfortunately, the only thing I have for a guy with your little experience in the action is a suicide group going into the Marshall Islands. <laughs> so, of course, he didn't tell, tell my mother. He says, you got your man. And they gave him, they bumped him up to a, a Commodore and gave him 12 LCIs, landing craft infantry, that brought in the Marines and frogmen and protected them in Saipan, Kwajalein, Anahuitak, Tinian, and all the major battles in the in the in the Marshall Islands, about seventy percent of his men were killed or wounded, and Dad survived. And I remember they had me dressed in a in a sailor suit at five years old, greeting him, you know, because he hadn't been home in two and a half years. You know, you couldn't commute in those days, and so he was an amazing guy. He went back to National City for a week and then quit again. He said a bunch of draft jotters there, and he rejoined the Navy and. And he didn't think it was good to move your kids all the time, you know, which because every two years you get a different assignment. So he worked it. So every two years he'd be stationed around New York City somewhere, not far from where we lived, or in Washington or Norfolk. And he would commute on weekends. And so, uh, you know, he in the summer we would always go to wherever he was stationed. And and he he was always trying to teach me stuff, you know, about leadership and 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 all that. It was it was really amazing. I was fortunate because I I went to an interesting upbringing. I went to a ninety five percent Jewish elementary school and Jewish holidays. They put us all in one room, and I retired the Goya of the Month award, and, and then I merged into junior high school with a ninety ninety five black elementary school that eventually went to the Supreme Court in sixty one to test the neighborhood school, and that started busing. So I won all the elections as a compromise candidate. I was a basketball player, and I was bright. And, and so my dad was always there for me to say, okay, Ken, you know, because I was the president of seventh grade, then vice president of junior high, then president, then president of sophomore, and then vice president of high school, and then president. They always voted me to give the graduation speech. And he was just always there, just cheering me on and say, okay, Ken. That's a good point, but don't get your ego in the way or what, you know. And so it was just amazing. He's doing that. And then my mother's saying, don't you act like you're better than anybody else. So I'm getting this one-two punch from the two of them. And so it was really, really something, just tremendous, tremendous support. My mom died at 95. Dad died at finally at 76 because he came back from the war with really high blood pressure, you know, and had ended up having a stroke. And, but he was really quite a quite, quite a guy. Well, if you're going to beat your mom's record, what are you going to do for the next 13 years? Well, I'm working on that now. I got a coach, Art Turok, that works with me. And and uh, every day I work on my recumbent bike and do strength and, and stretching exercises. And and uh, Marge and I are watching our diet. I'm, I weighed the other day 183, and I, I used to weigh 236. You know, and so I'm really trying to stay in shape, and so is she, because we'd like to hang around together for as long as we we can, you know. And, you know, we aren't, aren't in charge of it, but, but you can certainly help yourself by not not doing stupid stuff. Yeah. And so it's, we're just having, having fun. You know, I'm interested in thinking about maybe a little bit different side of servant leadership than maybe gets talked about all the time. Um what about the times, you know, you've run this business for 43 years. There's been times when things were really tough. <laughs> things didn't look good or there was a, there was a crisis of some sort. Yeah. Can you talk about being the servant leader when the decision is yours and it's that clutch time where you need to do something, 
you need to make the big decision and how that servant leadership mindset can help when it's that high pressure decision and it really is on you to kind well, of I think the first thing is you don't go back in your office and make decision by yourself. You get with your people and say, here's the situation. I think we got a tough decision ahead. And I wanted to share with you what my thinking is uh, on this. And, you know, if it sounds really stupid, let me know. You know, because I felt for a long time, Rick Tate, a colleague of mine, always said, feedback is the breakfast of champions, you know. But even when the going is tough and and you got to call the shot, involve your people and tell them what you're, you're thinking and and all that, you know, because cause too often, you know, people, decisions that come out of the top office and everybody say, where did that come from, you know, and, and all. And so my dad always said, communicate, 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 you know, and when you stop communicating, communicate, you know, and so that it was really fun while he was still alive one weekend a year, all of the commanding officers of his 12 ships who were still alive and their wives would come up to our house and 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 for a weekend just celebrating being together. And it was just marvelous to hear their stories while I was growing up and, you know, about your dad, he was unbelievable, you know, and all. <laughs> dad said, you know, how could I act like I know what I was doing? I didn't. <laughs> You know, we, he said uh, the most important colleague I had was my 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 chiefs, because they're the ones that knew everything. He said you always got to talk to your chiefs. How, how fun to have a dad like that! My mom's dad, my grandpa Jim Bridge, also World War II vet. She's just my complete hero in life. I I was so excited. I moved to this farm town as a ten year old from a city of a million up by Edmonton, down this farm town of like thirty five hundred people who. Our family had moved there in the eight, early 1880s, 1890s. And, you know, I'm related to like half the town, right? Yeah. And my grandpa was a guy who sounds a little bit like your dad. And it just, I didn't want to do bad things because I didn't want to embarrass him. Yeah. Like I, it was, I feel like it's such an incredible privilege to have someone like that to look up to. It, it, I, I don't know how to estimate how big of an influence it was on my life. But as you talk about your dad, like I just reliving those feelings of what it was like to grow up four doors down from my grandpa. Yeah, well, you know, and you don't want to disappoint them and all. But the reality is you also know in your heart they're talking common sense, you know, and and it is and it really, really works, you know, that, you know, people say, how, I mean, how could you work with so many different co-authors and all? Well, I love people. People are great. You know, and, you know, I, I need their help. You know, we, we're, we're a team and all that kind of thing, you know. And so it's, but it's just, you know, I always say that love is the answer. What's the question, you know? And servant leadership is all about love and action, really. And, but it's not soft management because, see, there's two parts of servant leadership. There's the vision, direction, values, and goals part. And that comes from the hierarchy. It's your responsibility as a manager, to make sure your people know what they're being asked to do. It doesn't mean you don't involve them, but if they don't know what they're being held accountable for and what good behavior looks like, shame on you. Now, once the leadership part of servant leadership is clear, now you turn that pyramid upside down, and now you work for them. You know, your job is to help them win, and 
you'll get a kick out of this. And I, I always tell the story, but I was in trouble all the time as a college professor because the first day of class, I always gave out the final examination. And the rest of the faculty say, what are you doing? I say, I'm confused. They say, acted. I thought, so we're supposed to teach these kids. You are, but don't give them the final at the head of time. I said, not am I going to give them the finals the first day of class. What do you think I'm going to do all semester? I'm going to teach them the answers. So when they get the final exam, they get A. Life's all about getting A's, not some stupid normal distribution curve. Any of you that are listening in organizations where you've got to screw a certain percentage of your people, get a life. I mean, how many of you go out we need to hire some new losers this year. We lost some of our worst people last year. Let's hire some new ones to fill the low slots. No, you either hire winners you steal from other companies or you hire people you think are potential winners. You're not hiring losers. Why do you do that? So I wrote a book with Gary Ridge, the president of WD-40, called Help People Win at Work, but the neat thing is the subtitle, a business philosophy called Don't Mark My Paper, Help Me Get an A. And he's implemented this system in WD-40. The last time they did it, you know what their employee engagement score was? 92%. Have you ever heard of anybody with a 92% employee engagement score? Yeah, 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 yeah I've heard 92% disengaged. <laughs> I mean, you know, that, yeah, they say 65 or 70% of the workforce are all different disengaged. And um, so, I mean, at WD-40, everybody knows that their job as a manager is to get their people A's. Now, duh, if they accomplish the goals, what will that do for the organization? Duh, the organization will succeed. That's why I'm, you know, that's why some of these simple truths are just so powerful and simple, you know. And we're hoping people go through them, you know, with their people one one at a time, one week at a time, or a bunch at a time, or whatever. I want to I want to talk about this concept of simple for a minute. There are so many of us that would like to write books or might have the itch to write business books, and. There are so many business books that aren't successful. What are what are some of the tips that you have? Like, what do you see the big mistakes that people make when they write business books? Well, the biggest mistake that most people make is they write a book and they get an editor for the uh, when they find a publisher, and that's all they get the feedback from. You're not writing for your editor. You're writing for the people. And I remember when Spencer Johnson and I were working on the one minute the we met in the first week in November and had a draft of it by the time we were going to the Rose Bowl with a bunch of people and we made copies for them to read and they all loved it and all. And I said, Spencer, we ought to go to New York and get it, get to get it published, get a publisher. And he said, no way. He said, they'll beat us up and take all the money. He said, we have to prove that we need have a track record. Let's self-publish it. And so we self-published the One Minute Manager and through YPO this first year with no advertising, we sold 20,000 copies, you know. So when we went to New York, we had a track record. And the key thing, too, that Spencer taught me was that we wrote a draft, showed it to people who were close to us and got their feedback, made changes there, then showed it to a little wider audience, got feedback from them, and then made changes. When I'm working on a book, we, we have a cottage in upstate New York on Skinny Atlas Lake, one of the Finger Lakes. Margie's mom and dad bought a cottage up there in 1947. Bought, they didn't buy the cottage, they bought 300 uh, feet of lake frontage for $3,000. No, for $300, <laughs> like a, a puck of foot. And uh, what I do is I we belong to the Skinny Atlas Country Club. It's a little country club at the end. It's the only thing on the lake that's uh, commercial. It's a, 17 miles long, but not, nothing commercial, but a country club and a, and a marina. And I'll announce I got a new book coming out. 
if you pick it up at the manager's office, I'll buy you dinner and and I want you to get feedback. And so I'll go and, you know, 80, 80 to 100 people will usually show up for dinner and it's a buffet. And I say at your table while you're eating dinner, your job is to come up with three things you really like about the book and three things you think ought to be changed to make it the best book you've ever read and the best title of the book that you uh, have besides the one on it. And I remember... Uh, the, I wrote a book with the two top trainers who were in the SeaWorld, and it was called Killer, From Killer Whales to Kids, The Power of Positive Thinking. And one of the tables came up and said, terrible name, call it Whale Done. Duh, which is, became a major you know, million-dollar seller, Whale Done. And all. It's funny, I, took, I told Norman Vincent Peale when he and I wrote a book together called The Power of Ethical Management that I was going to do this. And he said, well, can Ruth and I come? Because... He started his ministry in Syracuse right here. He could, so I told people that Norman and Ruth were coming. 300 people showed up. <laughs> so we went around and all the tables went out, you know, gave feedback and all that kind of thing. And so then I asked Norman to talk to the group and he was 88 at the time. And he gets up and he said, oh, he said, I've never been to a free for all like this in my life. He said, I've written 30 books. And when I finish one, Ruth and I pray. He said, Ken doesn't trust that process. <laughs> he got the biggest kick out of it. So the biggest advice is keep on getting feedback until people say, I pay $20 for a draft copy of that book. You know, now you know you got something. So don't rush it out and don't just believe the editor of the publishing company. Keep on keeping on. So I, I've been thinking about what you said about you know, your essays need to be seven pages or less. And the one minute manager is like a children's book for managers, <laughs> sure. you know, yeah. and these ideas of simple. And so a book that I've been working on, my, my working title is Warren Buffett, Special Operations and Compound Interest Investing. And it's all about the principles from Warren Buffett and his mentors and his followers and sure, how they relate yeah, to these different clients and guys that work at our charity, Child Rescue, from the Special Operations Command and just yeah, ways into that. And I, I don't know, I'm so attracted to what you talk about with Simple. I went through the book and I thought, I don't know if people are going to read this. Like some of my very favorite books are almost like picture books. Like why don't I yeah. redo this? I'm an illustration well, major. Plus, plus your title isn't any good, you know. Okay. The title ought to be, Would You Like to Make Money? And the subtitle is, Learn About Buffett's Secrets or something like that, you know. But, okay. You know, you know, Warren Buffett, you know, yeah, you know, but do you want to make that money? That should be the tagline. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, put it as a tagline or something like that. And then the other thing that's interesting is when the woman and manager came out in search of excellence, Tom Peters uh, wrote that with Waterman and John Nesbitt wrote Megatrends and they were long books. But they were on the bestseller list with the woman and manager because in the first chapter, they told everything that they wanted the, you to know in the first chapter. In other words, you know, Peters had seven secrets uh, to say, and, he, and they told her what the seven secrets were in the first chapter. And, and Nesbitt told about the key stuff in Megatrends. And then the rest is like a reference book, you know, and uh, which was a really good idea. It was really fun because Tom Peters and I were fraternity brothers at Cornell. And John Nesbitt was a graduate student in my department at Cornell. I was in the government department. So we said to Harvard, you're nothing. Cornell's got it. 
you know, because <laughs> the three best-selling books were all Cornelians at that time. But it was really, really fun. That's so I get, yeah. What What's one more tip for people who want to write a business book? Well, I think is is don't wait until it's perfect. In other words, and also don't think you have to sit down and write, hand write it because I basically walk around and talk into a recorder because I'm much more better verbally. And then somebody types it up. We got editors that edit it and stuff like that, you know. And so, but get the, I call it the diarrhea version. Get it, get it out <laughs> and then get some feedback and then make some changes and then give it to some other people and then make some changes and all. Because a lot of people are reworking it and reworking it. And a guy, I met a guy recently, he said, I've been working for five years on this book. I said, Jesus, <laughs> that's ridiculous, you know. I how, mean, how long does the book take you? you? Well, Spencer Johnson and I were the one-minute manager. You know, it took us two months, you know. And, and so uh, when I write a book with a, a person, we first say, what do we want to teach? You know, and come up with the concepts. And how do we make sure it's not teaching them too much? And then we get our editors and all and say, okay, how can we make a story out of this, <laughs> you know, and, and then start to write in the story, you know, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's fun. So it's, should this, um, you and Randy, Randy. Yeah. what, was, what that was that process, process for Simple, Simple Truths and Leadership? Well, once we decided to do it, then, you know, I started saying, we ought to share simple truths, you know, and so we started writing some of them. He started writing some of trust and all, and then we, our editor said, wow, this is really powerful, you know, and, you know, how, how can we do this? Well, I said, well, let's, we ought to have 52 of them so they could have one a week, you know, I mean, you know, and so it started to, to do that. And then, you know, he did his 26 and I did my 26 and then we would exchange them back and forth. And so it took a little bit longer. It took a, you know, a little over a year, you know, putting that all together. So, but it was, it was, it was fun. And people who read it go, wow, this just summarizes all the stuff you've been teaching for. 40 years, you know, yeah, because it's all about serving and, and building trust. Well, I know we're about out of time, but maybe to close, we're going to have Randy on the show as well. What was it about Randy that you decided you wanted to have him co-author this with you? Well, because he's really studied trust and has been chosen as one of the top people in the country and in the field of trust. And he's worked with us for 25 years. So I'd really trust Randy and he's just fabulous. And and it just made sense. And, and I've written books with a number of people in the company, and, and I had never written one with Randy. And I thought, wow, if I want to write with something with servant, tr servant leadership again, I ought to build in trust. And he's just such a natural. And you'll, you'll enjoy him in your interview. He's a fabulous uh, guy. His wife works with us, and his son used to work with us uh, for a while, too. And so uh, we break all the rules. So we have, if we announce a position that's available, and somebody nominates a relative or a friend, and they get the job, they get a bonus of, I think, $400 for, for bringing that person in. So we got, you know, one couple that worked with us, and their two kids worked with us, and, you know, and Margie and I are on the company. Our daughter's the head of marketing. Our son's the president. Margie's brother was born when she was a freshman at Cornell. He's the CEO. And our son, Scott's wife, Madeline, headed up our coaching business for a long time, you know, so it's just a... It, what, what's your tip for how to help, you know, maybe problems at home not come to the office? Or how do you, what advice do you have when having family members work together or... Well, our big advice is never go to, to bed 
with an unsolved problem if you've got to stay up all night and and listen to each other. And we went to Marriage Encounter, which was a really powerful thing where you write each other letters, you know. And so if Margie and I have a real big issue, we write each other a letter about what our feelings are about it. And then we exchange the letters and read each other's. And then we decide who goes first. So if Margie goes first, she has to tell me what I said in my letter about this until I agree that's what I said. And then I go and I got to tell her what she said in her letter until you agree. And then we talk. See, you know, because now you got the issues all out there, you know. And so I love the Zig Ziglar. He always said, nothing good happens by accident. Put some structure on it, you know, and that's some structure. We have a structure I'd recommend in parting with everybody. If you want to have a great relationship, we started a thing called one-on-ones. Meet with each of your direct reports for 15 to 30 minutes once every two weeks. And you schedule a meeting and they set the agenda. They can talk about a goal they're concerned about. They can talk about a sick kid that's hurting um, their thing. And if you met with your people 26 times a year, you don't want the meeting to go more than 30 minutes. I had a colleague and friend that ran a big company who always held his company meetings standing up so they wouldn't last more than an hour, you know. And so, but if you had 26 meetings with each of your people, in a year, would you know them and they know you? Absolutely. And people say, well, I don't have time and all. What are you doing? I, I'm at meetings. Well, forget those meetings. Stand up at the meetings. They're too long. Well, this has been so great. I appreciate you spending so much time with us. And thanks for writing these books. They helped me and our company and our charity and my family. Well, thank you. It's been a joy. And I love your enthusiasm and your smile. And you're making a difference out there for the world. So keep it up. Thanks. And write another book and come back on the show. We'll talk about it. For sure. I'm working well with my Scott, my son Scott now called The Legacy of Leadership. It's a family affair. Oh, yeah. Okay. Let's have you back on. Let's talk about it. Okay. Thank you. Bye now.